Hello, my name is Mike Diedrich, and this is the Veterans for Peace Chapter 92 uh, radio show. Uh, this is broad, being broadcast on KODX 96.9 FM. Uh, the broadcast will be shown on our website at VFP92 and also on their website on the radio station. These are all archived interviews. So uh, let me read the statement of purpose for Veterans for Peace. We, having dutifully, dutifully served our nation, do hereby affirm our greater responsibility to serve the cause of world peace. To this end, we will work with others towards increasing public awareness of the cost of war, to restrain our governments from intervening overtly and covertly in the internal affairs of other nations, to end the arms race, and to reduce and eventually eliminate nuclear weapons, to seek justice for veterans and victims of war, to abolish war as an instrument of national policy. To achieve these goals, members of Veterans for Peace pledge to use nonviolent means and to maintain an organization that is both democratic and open with the understanding that all members are trusted to act in the best interests of the group for the larger purposes of world peace. We urge all people who share this vision to join us. Today, this uh, program is, I'm joined with uh, Michael McPherson, uh, former national coordinator of uh, Veterans for Peace, and uh, Randy Rowland, a draft resistor or war resistor. Um, yeah, well, thank you, uh, Mike, for opening up the show. Uh, I just want to remind people that the radio show airs and streams every fourth Wednesday of the month from 6 to 7 p.m. on KODX 96.9 FM Seattle. And you can find that at, at um, KODXSeattle.org. And you can also find our archived uh, radio shows from the past on that website, kodxseattle.org slash Seattle VFP. And yes, today we're having uh, Randy Rowland um, on the show. Um, Randy's an awesome person. He's a member of Veterans for Peace. He has a very interesting history. Um, we had him on, I think, for two reasons. One is because we want Randy to share um, his history um, as it relates to Vietnam. And I'm going to read something real quick about that. Uh, but we also wanted to talk about the Atlantic um, article that has Trump that says, and I believe what it says, uh, that Trump basically disparaged uh, people that serve in the military and veterans. And we know how he how he talked about McCain um, being captured uh, as a loser. He likes people who are not captured, Trump says. Um, so we want to talk about that. So real quick about Randy and then. Um, we'll bring him on to tell his story for himself. But I found this at Anti-War and Radical History Project, Pacific Northwest. I'm just going to read the first paragraph of this. It says, Randy Rowland was raised in a conservative military family. And after dropping out of college in 1967, he joined the Army and was stationed at Fort Lewis near Tacoma, Washington. Trained as a medic, Rowland found himself taking care of paralyzed and severely wounded men without a without a convincing explanation for all the suffering he was seeing. Roland's early experiences as a medic were just the beginning of a long process of questioning and political transformation that would lead him throughout the course of the Vietnam War to a life of activism. So, Randy, thank you for coming on to the show. Well, thank you for having me. So, I gave that introduction about you, um, and that all by itself sounds really interesting. So why don't you tell us a little bit about 
that period in your life? Well, the most interesting thing really uh, is that I'm one of very few people that are alive in America who can say that they were convicted of mutiny, and um, which uh, gives me a certain perspective on life, I suppose, that others may not necessarily have. Um, it is true I was a medic, and it's true that I joined the Army believing it was my patriotic duty, that it was, uh, you know, uh, you have to pay the dues for living in the country, and that, uh, you know, I didn't get to choose what those dues were going to be. Um, and in those days, of course, the dues was that you were supposed to go into the military and, you know, go off to war, which now, you know, looking back, most folks, I think, sum up that the Vietnam War was pretty much of a giant mistake on the part of our country. Um, at the time, I didn't realize that because I hadn't really thought about it. But in taking care of uh, the wounded, particularly paralyzed soldiers, I, um, I, uh, I changed. So, you know, that's that. One thing led to another. Um, <clears throat> I joined the uh, anti-war GI movement as an active duty soldier, as a medic. Um, and ultimately, um, ultimately, I, um, I, well, I did a, a variety of acts of resistance, but the, it culminated in uh, uh, when 27 of us sat down in the, Presidio stockade and saying we shall overcome linked arms in protest to a soldier who had been gunned down by a prison guard. Um, and um, that wrongful death led us to protest, you know, something that folks nowadays certainly understand the concept of. And, um, and we were convicted uh, for singing we shall overcome of mutiny. And uh, I went to prison for that. I went into prison as a as a religious pacifist and um, you know, became radicalized in prison as so often happens. And I have spent the rest of my life in one way or another in some form of activism. Okay. How long were you in prison? Year and a half. Okay. And then after you got out, what did you, what did you well do? then after I got out, I just went right back to them. I mean, I was part of the movement at that point And, uh, so I reported for my next duty and uh, ended up organizing GIs at Fort Lewis. Um, you know, worked on an underground GI paper there, worked as sort of a, uh, a recently um, discharged veteran, so to speak, um, um, helping to organize the GI movement at Fort Lewis. The war was still going on and we still needed to, you know, get the U.S. out of that war. And, um, uh, um, and so I did that. Then I was sent by the movement into, uh, into a smelter in Tacoma. And I worked for 10 years in a smelter. Uh, the notion of the new left in those days was that, uh, was that we really needed to go to the working class and, uh, and win them over to um, you know, a progressive way of thinking. And, um, and so my political assignment was to go to the smelter where I, where I worked for 10 years. You know, um, and... Um, um, you know, uh, with a variety of, you know, you know, if you think about it now, it's too bad the new left gave up on that dream because we, you know, America might be in a different spot if all of those lefties had continued to, to uh, uh, work in those, uh, you know, heavily industrial bases. Of course, the country was changing and American industry 
you know, quickly enough after that, uh, in the Reagan years, started going overseas like crazy. And, uh, you know, um, so maybe a lot of those opportunities would have disappeared anyway. I don't know. But at any rate, I did that. I was a nurse. And uh, I, when I got out of the, when I, after 10 years, I, I went back into nursing. And I worked on the rest of my career in, uh, as a nurse. I retired from Harborview, um, um, where I worked for many, many years on a neurosurgical unit, the same kind of unit, really, that I was working on in the Army when I, when I uh, turned against the Vietnam War. And uh, one other question, and I'm, Mike might have some before we get to this uh, Atlantic article. Um, what made you decide to join Veterans for Peace? Well, I, uh, you know, anti-war was kind of the thing that got me into the movement, you know, uh, and um, I guess, um, although I, I got bad paper, you know, I got a bad discharge, um, but I've always felt myself a veteran. I certainly spent plenty of years in the Army, and, I, uh, and then I continued to work with GIs during the GI anti-war movement. Um, um, for years, I worked uh, with uh, other radical veterans organizations. Um, and when Veterans Peace for, for Peace came along in Seattle, um, one of uh, my good friends, who was a World War II veteran, um, um, said, hey, we're starting Veterans for Peace in Seattle, and I want you to join. And so I was there at the founding me meeting uh, for uh, the Veterans for Peace in Seattle chapter. And uh, I, I, you know, did other things um, that kind of took my attention away from VFP. I was always a member, but, um, you know, for about 10 years, I worked with Pepper Spray Productions, which was a radical uh, video collective in Seattle that tried to go out to the demonstrations and bother to ask the demonstrators why in the world they would spend their day doing that. Um, you know, unlike most of the media in those days, which would say, well, we don't understand why the demonstrators are so upset because all of their signs say different things, you know, well, duh. <laughs> you know, so we would go and actually ask people and then we would make videos about it. Uh, so I did that as my kind of primary activism for many years. Um, towards the end, uh, after I retired, I also, my, my wife had dementia. And so my activism in many ways, she ended up being my cause uh, for the last few years of her life because I had to take care of her. Um, but uh, I was always a member of VFP through all of that, and still am. Uh, well, it's kind of interesting, Randy, because uh, I was with Randy. Uh, he filmed, actually, the first meeting we had of VFP in 2003, our inauguration meeting, and I served as the first victim, uh, first president of the chapter. <laughs> first victim. And what... <laughs> What brought me to VFP was actually a long time activism with Vietnam veterans against the war, which I got involved with right after, shortly after my got back from Vietnam. And Vietnam was one of those things where, unlike both of you guys, I didn't have a family background in the military at all. My, my ancestors, the only ones that were in the military were Civil War ancestors and who fought in Minnesota on the right side uh, for, um, you know, it was really a noble cause. And um, but and I thought I was I'd been to, been to school or college and I thought I read and I, I thought I knew something about the military. I did not want to go into the military, although I was drafted. 
but I thought I knew something about the military and something about war. You know, I'd spent two years in college and blah, blah, blah. But nothing prepared me for what uh, I saw and did really, really in Vietnam, and particularly the way that uh, civilians were killed uh, that I saw in Cholon, Saigon, Vietnam. And that, that was shocking to me, shocking to me, and it's still, you know, it's very visual to me what, what I saw and did there. And that drove me. I said, you know, that the whole thing was that war was alive, and, and, and I was, I was a, a sucker in a way of thinking that I knew something about which I knew, didn't really know n enough about and I had actually no experience for and no preparation for. And the reasons that I went there were bogus. So it was, when I came back from Vietnam, I was very angry and that drove me right into the arms of the anti-war movement, in particular the Vietnam Veterans Against the War, and then later Veterans for Peace, you know. Uh, so, you know, that's a long story short. The, uh, um, the things that are embodied in our mission statement or something I, I fervently believe in and it's not something that I uh, have any trouble embracing. You know, the, the war itself broke, Fo uh, focused my beliefs right so you and randy have known each other quite some time well yeah since uh well since the early 2000s i mean yeah. I, I sort of it's interesting you talk about you know uh, some of the left and I, I knew some people in the swp i don't know if you were in the swp or, or another one of those uh organizations who they're, they're they're and i agree with you i think that that's sort of working class identity, a radical sort of infiltration of the working, uh, you know, unions and the working class is a good idea or a way to influence them. And, um, uh, it's one of the reasons that we, we have such a crappy union movement in this country that, that people are not very well informed about it. Um, um, unions were the uh, prime movers in this country for social justice. Right. So, well, so thank you, uh, Randy, for telling us a little bit about your background. Um, and I felt like one of the reasons I talk, called Mike and we started talking about what we wanted this show to be about, and then all of a sudden it was like, oh, well, we can talk about this Atlantic uh, interview. And in a way, we're not really talking about the Atlantic interview, not interview, I should say article about Trump um, called Trump, Americans who died in war are losers and suckers. Um, I think what we want to get at is talk about this idea of whether or not veterans or people who die in war are losers and suckers. What does that really mean? Um, and so before we, we all comment on that, I just wanted to pull some things out of the article. Um, for example, Trump was in Europe and he was supposed to go to a cemetery and he wanted to know, why should I go to the cemetery? It's filled with losers. Apparently, um, that's what he said. And I believe, I believe the article. Just want everyone to know that. Um, we do know what he said about McCain. Um, I like people who weren't captured. Um, he called President Bush a loser because he was President H.W. Bush a loser because he was shot down. Um, I just want to read this statement from the White House um, just to try to be fair. Um, uh, this report is false. President Trump holds the military in the highest regard. He demonstrated his commitment to them at every turn, delivering on his promise to give our troops a much needed pay raise, increasing military spending, signing critical veterans reforms, and supporting military spouses. 
this has no basis in fact. Yeah, so um, I just wanted to hear, um, Randy, what your thoughts are on what this might mean. Because I just real quick, for me, I feel like it, it rips off what a segment of the population feels about us as veterans or people who serve. Um, I think this phrase that I thought about this morning, people fight for causes, leaders send us to fight for interests. Those are two different things. Um, I feel like that kind of captures that, you know, um, what's kind of going on. And whether or not we're, we're losers or suckers because we believe in something, I think is, is, a, is a nuanced question and answer. Um, but how they feel about us isn't, you know, and, and Trump was one of the few times you hear people in his class, economic and social class, really tell what they actually think. So I, I thought we could have a little conversation about that. So what do you think? Well, it is true that most of the time they use us like crazy. You know, the old phrase in the back in Vietnam days was used once and thrown away. You know, we were like, you know, like Kleenex soldiers or something, you know, I mean, and, um, uh, you know, disposable, and they didn't really give a really in terms of either our circumstance or, of course, the people that we were sent against. Um, and so, you know, they, I think they've always treated us that way. Trump was, you know, uh, he's just such a buffoon that he admitted it kind of on, in, you know, in the hearing of people who reported it. Um, so, you know, for that, for that part, um, you know, I don't, you know, yeah, he, he just let the cat out of the bag. That's all in terms of their attitude towards us. Does that mean that people are losers and suckers? Well, you know, if you, that, that's a whole question about American foreign policy and, and the nature of the system, I think. But actually, I'd like to go in a little different direction because I think that the Trump, um, Trump has said all kinds of disparaging things now against the Pentagon, uh, you know, against the brass, who I've never said anything good about the Pentagon in my life. But, uh, but uh, I'm, I'm going to channel my father, who was a career military, you know, he was this career soldier. Uh, my father was a World War II veteran. He was also a veteran of Korea and Vietnam. He went to Vietnam when I refused to go to save the family name. You know? um, and, uh, and, you know, uh, my father was, uh, was really proud of the military. Um, and uh, he was proud of service. He was proud of the country. Um, and, and some of the ways that he was proud are worth remembering. For instance... My father many times told me about how the, the U.S. military had integrated in the 1940s, long before most of civilian society had, and that by doing so, it had played a progressive role in pushing America forward because uh, the American military in integrating was essentially modeling what it could look like. How could this work? You know, can, can America do this? And, and what, what the brass immediately summed up, I think, was that the military was the better for the fact that they had integrated. Now, it wasn't perfect. You know, there's no, you know, I'm not pretending that. And my father didn't pretend that. But he was very proud of the fact that, that on those military bases scattered through all the South, named for Confederate generals, that there was integration of, you know, nominal integration uh, in the 1940s. Now, just by by comparison, you know, Ms. Rosa Parks sat down in 1955, you know, refused to get up off, the, off of her seat in the bus in 1955. So in the 1940s, 
the U.S. military integrated. My father was really proud of that. You know, he was the kind of guy that would always claim that you know, whenever they raised the flag you know, up the mast, you know, he would shed a tear, you know. Um, and uh, he and I never saw eye to eye on a lot of stuff. But, uh, you know, but uh, I want to bring that up because uh, of what's going on right now, which in uh, which I only discovered, frankly, when we were when VFP wanted to run an ad right after the Trump's photo op where he had the National Guard clear the park of of peaceful protesters so that he could stroll across it and hold up a Bible in that same pose that, oddly enough, there's a picture of Hitler in that same exact pose holding the Bible in that kind of weird way. It's like, you know, did he plan it to look like Hitler? I don't know. But, but, um, but uh, you know, the National Guard did clear the park. And, and shortly after that, of course, there was an awful lot of concern in the ranks of the military about being used against their own people, you know, and uh, it's, it's bad enough, you know, there's this weird disconnect in the American military, I think, where they kind of treat people around the world as if they're not people. And that kind of allows them psychologically to kind of do the bad shit that they do. Um, um, and which is a whole different conversation, but, but, you know, by and large, it's a lot harder to think of your own countrymen, uh, your own people as, um, as being on the other side of that kind of horror that the U.S. dishes out through its military. Well, at any rate, so uh, we wanted to, we in Seattle VFP wanted to put an ad in the in the uh, Fort Lewis newspaper, the Ranger, um, that would uh, would reach out to soldiers who were nervous about uh, this idea of being used against their own. And in the course of doing that, I started reading the Ranger, which I haven't read for years. You know, I used to read it back when I was stationed at Fort Lewis and I read it when I was working in the, uh, you know, in the underground at Fort Lewis, but uh, I hadn't read it for years. And I was so surprised when I started reading it in preparation for us running the ad, because I had to figure out the details of uh, the ad. And I was so surprised when I started re reading all these articles from Pentagon leaders that were embracing Black Lives Matter and, and criticized themselves for not having done more for, uh, to end racism within the ranks of the military. And, you know, uh, that kind of stuff. And they were even criticizing themselves for having been suckers on the Pentagon. I mean, uh, when, they, when Trump walked across the street for the Bible op, the photo op. And I was sort of surprised because that was unexpected. And, and, you know, in a sense, my father's voice rang out to me. All those times I had heard as a kid him brag about how the military had played a leading role in, in integration. Um, and... Um, and it occurred to me that, you know, what seems obvious to, to anybody with a brain, which is, that, which is that you'd have a hell of a lot better unit cohesion and a hell of a lot better and stronger military if they, if they actually did treat the soldiers all fairly and everybody felt like they were all part of the same team and that, you know, um, uh, that only makes sense, that that would make for a better military. You know, I mean, part of the task of every military is to try and divide and conquer the, other, the opposing military. And one of the ways that uh, that uh, that that has always been happened is um, is because of issues of race within our own, you know, the weaknesses within our own ranks. You see, and so you know, you could you could sum up, and I'll grant you this, you know, anybody particularly coming from my point of view, <laughs> convicted mutineer. Uh, you could easily sum up that the brass is just a bunch of lion snakes and that all those articles that they were putting in the, in the military newspapers around the world were, um, were just trying to um, buffoon, you know, or uh, buffalo the, uh, 
the the troops into keeping you know keeping them within the ranks and stuff like that but i'm going to offer up a different perspective and it's a perspective that i that i get uh, from being a mutineer and being uh, you know the son of a career soldier um um and and it's this i think that the military may well have had a moment of you know an epiphany uh, a kind of a wake-up moment look the country in general is having a wake-up moment and there's no reason to think that the military wouldn't have the same kinds of thoughts. Um, and they know that how important it is to maintain unit cohesion and, and a sense of, you know, dedication to the duty and, and, um, and that kind of business. And that could only be enhanced by having a, a stronger military by way of, of, you know, taking another step. You know, that step that my father talked about was a giant step on a very long path, but it was a giant step. You know, didn't make things perfect, but it definitely moved things forward and ultimately contributed to moving American society forward, you know, in that kind of staggering way towards making the country a more perfect union. And so, you know, my father always told me about that kind of business. And I think that we've got to at least stop and say, well, they could be lion snakes and that they really haven't gotten the message. Or you could take a different point of view and say, well, maybe the Pentagon actually doesn't. Uh, you know, uh, want to continue the old ways under a commander in chief who, you know, does everything but wave the Confederate battle flag. He's a, ra- you know, an avowed racist, you know, and, um, you know, and that, uh, that maybe the military is, maybe there's a, div- maybe there's a division between the Pentagon and the president. Well, it's not hard to find those kind of things because nowadays Trump is calling them all a bunch of war profiteers and all kinds of weird names that no president has ever called the American military, as far as I can tell. And that's because he's this petulant child who, when he doesn't get his way, tries to bully, just like a wife beater who will, you know, like call his wife names to try and make her do what he wants her to do. Well, you know, Trump is like, uh, you know, the petulant bully who is like calling the Pentagon brass a bunch of war profiteers and all kinds of other names. And then going so far as to call the rank and file a bunch of losers and suckers. You know, that's, that's him acting out in the way that he is, you know, I mean, if there's ever a lesson that to be learned from this, one of them would be that American people have got to be a lot better at selecting their president because we've got one right now who doesn't understand the difference between right and wrong. So clearly, that's the case, and 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 the com the consequence of that is significant. So now here's the pre- here's the Pentagon, who, if you want to believe those articles that were in the Ranger and the military newspapers around the country, here's the Pentagon who is pretty nervous about being used for the political advantages of a president who would love to see the streets on fire and rioters in the streets and all that stuff. And for him to call out the military to be used against his own people, he would love that because that would, you know, if he runs on his, on, on the record of his miserable, you know, uh, years as president, that's a losing record for sure. You know, I mean, Trump has managed to put himself on the wrong side of history on every single question that has come up. And the military knows this stuff too. Look at, for instance, the Pentagon situation, you know, their, their task, of course, is maintain readiness. In the context of COVID, among other things, that means that they have mandated that every soldier pretty much at all times has to wear a mask, you know, uh, because they can't be having the, 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 the pandemic running through the ranks and think that they're going to maintain readiness. And so they have to be scientific about this. They have to be, you know, hardcore 
they have to make you know make sense of what's going on and then do appropriate measures so that they can fulfill their mission which is maintain readiness so if you read this if you read this week's ranger for instance it's all about how it's patriotic to wear your mask and you're going to wear a mask every time you as soon as you get out of bed you're putting a mask on and and you know if, if, if your wife goes to the px she's going to have a mask on and you know all that kind of stuff now this is the same pentagon that just a few weeks ago was criticizing themselves publicly to the troops you know this wasn't some article written by a journalist um uh trying to sum up their thought on how these generals are thinking these were the general's own words on how you know they criticized themselves for not taking black lives more seriously and they were really going to change how the military runs and to prove the point they went ahead and banned the confederate flag on every military base in the country you know right now an enlisted man can't drive on base with a confederate flag on his bumper you know you know he can't have a bumper sticker in his window of his car uh, or any of that other kind of business the confederate flag just to, you know they i think the brass is serious you know and and it might be it might be and i don't want to be the hopeless optimist here but but uh, but you know it is a mutineer talking <laughs> but it might well be that this is a moment when the american military is about to take another step forward similar to the step they took forward in the in the 1940s when they decided to integrate the troops and and so here we have this irony of um, of uh, a commander in chief who is a racist mf and you know and a military that's that seems to have gotten the the memo uh, from their own internal compass that, that that the military would be a lot better off if racism didn't exist within the military so you know and then they went ahead and and the 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 brass criticized themselves to the troops through the medium of these base newspapers you know you know here it is the brass speaking directly to the troops through the media we're sorry that we got used in that photo op and we ain't going to be used against the american people now two months after they said that you know uh is it any surprise that the that the uh that the president who who then couldn't send in when he sent in so-called federal troops to portland those were rent-a-cops those were not pentagon soldiers those were rent-a-cops from the uh homeland security and the border people who use uh very heavily rely on um on uh the, the pro proper the polite word for it is contractors right they subcontract but they're privatized and all that stuff and so just like they use subcontractors in iraq to do a lot of stuff um they use a, a lot of subcontractors uh for the border uh patrol and for the homeland security and so when trump wanted to send in troops to portland to stir things up which is what we all know exactly what he did <coughs> excuse me when trump wanted to send those troops into the portland he didn't send in uh, pentagon troops he sent in rent-a-cops you know rent-a-cops with a license to kill wearing you know uh subcontractor uniforms you know made by some some contractors and they were contractors those were not pentagon forces and that shows you i think how the and, and the pentagon has been very careful i think to try and keep out of a political battle that's not their job you know they're not supposed to be for the democrats or the republicans or for this candidate or that they have a duty to the constitution they also have a duty to follow the commander-in-chief um but um but they don't have a duty to intervene for one candidate or the other which is what trump is trying to get them to do 
Trump has shown clearly, I mean, he, he held the Republican convention in the White House. He's using Air Force One as a backdrop for his various political campaigns. And, and of course he would, you know, if he would do all that stuff, which everybody knows you're not supposed to do to use the public money for your personal campaign, uh, which is what, it, what essentially is happening when he uses the White House for his own campaign. Is, would it, is it any stretch of imagination to think he would use the, the public, the military for his own personal campaign? Of course he would. And, and that's exactly what he wanted to do. And apparently the Pentagon is resisting that notion. And as a result, petulant Trump, you know, is calling the Pentagon a bunch of warmongers. True enough, but, but you know, unusual for a president to say, you know, and then he's calling the American soldiers a bunch of losers and suckers. Well, you know, I mean, I felt like, a, in retrospect, I feel like I was a sucker during the Vietnam days, but I hadn't realized that when I joined. You know, that was an afterthought, you know, easy to see when you look back sometimes. But, but whether or not they're suckers or not, the fact that the president is calling them that and revealing just how little he cares about, A, the troops, B, the mission, or C, anything else other than his own personal agenda, you know, is becoming very, very clear, which means, in my opinion, we have a hell of a constitutional crisis going on right now. Much bigger, I think, than even the question of who's gonna to get to pick the next Supreme Court justice. And the constitutional crisis has to do with this. Think for a second about the, pers about the perspective of the Pentagon of the brass. So on the one hand, they take an oath every time they re-up to uphold the Constitution of the United States and all that kind of business. They also, part of that oath is also to obey the president because he is the commander in chief. My father always taught me that uh, one of the proudest parts about the American military is that it is ultimately ruled by the civilians. It's never that the military rules America, it's always that America rules the military. And the way that works in a practical way is that the president, the civilian, who has been picked by our electorate, the president is the commander in chief of the military at all times. So now you've got conflicting problems though, because on the one hand, you've got a president who does everything that spit on the constitution. And on the other hand, you've got a military who is, is um, sworn to uphold him, but, but doesn't want to be used as a, as a prop for his electoral campaign, you know, who really doesn't want to be uh, sent into the countries to stir up which is exactly what would be going on uh, if the uh, federal troops showed up. It's exactly what happened when the Renicops showed up in Portland. And, um, and so the Pentagon, I'm gonna give them the benefit of the doubt for my father's sake. And I'm gonna say, okay, let's say that those guys really don't wanna be used in that way and that they really do want to m make improvements in the military and take another big step on the question of race relations. Well, okay, now they've got a dilemma because the president, gives the orders, but they, so now if the president calls them out, if the president wants to, it's in the constitution, look it up. It says that if the president declares insurrection, then he can declare martial law. You know, once that, once he's declared insurrection, then the president is allowed to declare martial law in this, in this country, which means of course, that he would be the ruler of everything. And who would be, who would be imposing that? Well, the American military. So now here's the Pentagon and their crisis, which is that if the president declares martial law and calls out the military to be used against his own people, that, you know, they're going to be up against their own cousin and mothers and daughters and whoever else, you know, 
in the streets of America, you know, um, are they going to go for it? Now, I've got to say, I've got to remind people of something that also happened just a couple months ago. And it happened over in Germany, where a prison guard, a Nazi, a, a, a prison guard in one of those Nazi concentration camps back in World War II, who had been eluding authorities for years by using a false name, was finally captured and, and put on trial. Now, the guy was in his 90s by now. And back then, when he was a prison guard at the concentration camp, he was only 17. And he didn't personally ever actually hurt anybody. He was just a prison guard, you know. And the question was, is he still responsible? Is he guilty? And the court found him guilty. Now, just a couple of months ago, the court found a 17-year-old prison guard who only followed the wrong orders. He followed fascist orders. They found him guilty because the Nuremberg standard, you see, is that um, if it's a question of crimes against humanity and other kinds of stuff like that, that you're not supposed to, those are, those are considered illegal orders, and you're not supposed to follow them. And that prison guard, so they have hounded down the chain of command all the way to the level of prison guards and found that guy just two months ago guilty. And in that context, think about what the Pentagon now faces. If the president gives the order and they go along with it and surrender the country to the fascists, then they and everybody down the chain of command to the level of prison guards will be hunted and hounded by history. If they refuse to surrender the country to the fascists, well, the first guy, he could say, I refuse to surrender the country to the fascists on grounds of conscience. And I suppose that would be an individual act of resistance. Kind of like the, the captain on that aircraft carrier a few months back when, when they wanted to just leave him out there and let the guys die on the, on the aircraft carrier of the COVID, and he just wouldn't have it. And he took a hit to try and... Um, he, I bet you that he was not planning when that voyage commenced to be a hero or to take an, a, a, a personal uh, uh, like step you know, or, or stand, I guess you could say, um, of conscience. But he did it. You know, he wasn't prepared to do that, but he did it. Gil Scott Heron once said, there's never a convenient time to be put squarely on the line. And boy, howdy, that, that aircraft carrier, you know, when it came time, though, he actually stood up. He actually did the right thing. He protected the soldiers, uh, the sailors, you know. Uh, so in my opinion, anyway, he was, he was the hero, you see. Now comes the Pentagon and the order that's coming. And we all see it coming down the road, right? I'll pull this election out. And they're going to have to decide, are they going for it? Or are they going to resist? If they resist, they protect everybody down the chain of command. So the first guy says, well, I won't do it. Well, that's an individual act of, of conscience. If the second guy says, I won't do it, now we've got a mutiny. And as a mutineer, I recognize the impending situation uh, with some clarity because, like I said before, I'm one of the few people in America that has actually been convicted of mutiny. And so I, I've been, probably because I was convicted of mutiny, I've spent a good part of my life thinking about what mutiny is and what the terms of it are and the implications and how does, that, and how does it differentiate. Isn't it odd that the generals and the admirals in the Pentagon are now walking point for the American people? But that's what's going on because the Nuremberg Standard says that you start at the top of the chain of command, not at the bottom with the prison guards. You start at the top and that those guys are supposed to lead the way and refuse the orders for the, of the fascists. And then, you know, if they, if they refuse the orders of the fascists, well, then game over. Fascists don't get to do anything.
if they accept the orders. <laughs> well, Randy, down the chain. Randy, you know, I, 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 you made some very good points, but you know, as the old saying it says, you don't need to be a weatherman to know which way the wind was blowing. And the Pentagon really saw which way the wind was blowing, certainly about the public protests. And uh, they're, they're actually, their status as uh, keepers of the flame, perhaps, but also they're, they're the military. And they didn't want the military to get involved in uh, the wrong side of this issue. The military these days is something like 40% non-white. And they, they, had, they, they said, well, we better do something about this. Whether or not they believe this necessarily in the higher ranks is another thing. I'd like to remind you that the military was dragged kicking and screaming into desegregation in the military by Harry Truman, and the brass did not want to do this. Um, so, I mean, the, the, he said, yes, as commander-in-chief, we are going to integrate, and they did. Uh, the other thing is, you know, the... the uh, it's sort of like you get on this sort of thing, you know, when people talk about um, thank you for your service, that is actually a cop-out for many of the people who are in the military who don't particularly want to be thanked for their service, but it's also a way for them to not take any responsibility for sending people to war, and that is actually dictated at the top of the, top of the food chain by people who don't really send their sons and daughters to the war. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, when you say thank you for your service, it's a way of saying to people in the military, now shut up and sit down. I don't want to hear about any problems you have. I don't want to hear criticism of the military, that sort of thing. Uh, when I was in, and you've probably run across it too, Randy, is uh, uh, years ago, I, I criticizing the military or criticizing the war, I'd have, I'd have these World War II veterans in particular say, you're not really a veteran. How could you, you criticize it? Probably might some sentiments that your father might agree with, but that you're not really a military, you're not really a veteran. How could you, how could you say anything wrong with the, the country, that sort of thing? A, a veteran wouldn't say that. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's obviously you know. absurd. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it's modern times. <laughs> And now veterans do say that, um, and isn't that a much better world that we live in? <laughs> right. It is, but I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of self interest in what the Pentagon has done recently. They do they do believe, I think, at at uh, at their core, is that they support the Constitution, and some of the things that are that are happening are not constitutional, and they have to have to say. Uh, it would be interesting if they did <laughs> did come to push to shove where they mobilized the truth. I don't think that. Um, I think that there would be some some battalion or a company commanders who would say, no, I'm not going to do this. Uh, whether the Pentagon says that or not is quite another thing, but I, I, there's certainly room for, for a platoon, platoon sergeant or a company commander to say, I'm not going to put armed soldiers on the streets of the United States, uh, uh, you know, being acting as a police force or a militia. Yeah. yeah. I think. Yeah. Let me, um, so we have probably about, uh, nine minutes. Um, so I'm gonna try to say a few things. One is I just want to say real quick. I don't think that 17 year old uh, kid is responsible um, for following the orders um, because I don't believe just like right now here in the United States when teenagers are prosecuted for murder as adults uh, sent to prison, you know, for life or whatever. I don't agree with that because we all know scientifically your brain isn't fully even formed 
at 17 years old, you don't know what the hell you're doing at 17. Um, so I, I, that, that's kind of disappointing, but uh, I clearly agree with um, the principle behind um, why he was found guilty. But I, I just had to say that because I, f- I find that somewhat appalling, uh, especially in this country. Uh, a lot of the reasons that was done is because people were after the young black males uh, trying to put them in jail. So um, one of the things that Trump has done is made it that people have to make a choice because he's so stark. Uh, most presidents that we've had, um, at least in my lifetime, have tried to walk a line pulling along, you know, what if it's the left or the right, there are people, but also reaching into the other side to some extent. And and looking at the, the Republican Party in particular, it's always had that undercurrent of racism. It's never really tried to purge it. It's tried to control it and use it as a constituency to get into office. Whereas Trump uses it as his ideology to get into office. So that has made people have to choose is polar, polarize the country. And there's certainly the military is not going to be any different in terms of people having to choose. Um, so I think most of the military is choosing not to be that way. And with the 40%, as, as you said, Mike, of people of color in the military, um, okay, so there's going to be some people who maybe agree with Trump, but at the same time, they know if they put troops in the streets uh, against against people standing up to him, there's going to be a good percentage of troops who are going to be out there that when it comes time to start shooting at Black Lives Matter protesters, they're not going to do it. And they might turn their weapons on the other soldiers. Um, so it's, it, it's not only going to be a constitutional crisis, it's going to be a, a in the street, on the ground kind of crisis um, within the forces who are supposed to protect and not say protect with quotes in the air, uh, supposed to protect the country. So it, it's um, Trump is really putting all everybody in a in a weird space, but it's a space that we needed to have, or we wouldn't be here. Um, but I think it all gets back to exactly what we started this conversation um, with Trump calling people losers at, and serving the country and ripping off because Trump. What Trump, I think, has done is hyperalized everything, right? So it's not like troops haven't been used against um, uh, protesters before, you know, during the Vietnam era, et cetera, right? It's not, or, Kent or either. State. Huh? Kent State. Kent State, right. Or um, the Bonus Army, how they were, you know, World War II veterans, or was it World War I veterans? Yeah, the World yeah. War I veterans being sweeped out of uh, Washington, D.C. by the 82nd Airborne. Not, was it the 82nd? Who was it? Yeah, but by U.S. troops. Yeah, by U.S. US troops. troops. Yeah. Right. So, against the yes, against led, the led by Led by future generals Eisenhower and MacArthur. Right, right. Yes, yes. And, and that probably has something to do with them becoming future generals, right? So it's not as if these things haven't been done. Um, but what Trump has done, I think, again, by polarizing things to such a degree, and we live in a time where there's, there's that we're multicultural, there's, there's, pol- there's what I want to say, poles of influence in our country today. There's not such like one pole to the extent there was back then. There's poles of influence. And, and so it's much more complicated. And by Trump trying to make it simple, 
he doesn't realize we don't live in the in the 40s and the 50s anymore. He's 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 back there and we're in today. Um, so he's just I feel like once again ripped off uh, a reality of of how they think about us, what they think about the American people, etc. And then that truth of what they think, um, and and they're acting. He'll he'll be trying to anyway act on that on that truth, and it's going to cause it could cause chaos if he wins. So we'll see. Um, but that's I think it takes us right back to you know what we were talking about in the beginning of this. Um, I don't know. Oh yeah, one other thing I wanted to say, and yeah, when they integrated. Two, I think a couple of things make that happen, right? One is activism, because there was a lot of activism that took place in the Black community um, to make that happen. And uh, Asa Phillips, um, I can't, I'm getting his name wrong. Um, he's the person who visualized the first March on Washington. And he threatened Truman with a March on Washington uh, yeah. around this. So there was a lot of act activism. I'll, I'll look his name up real quick because I want to get it right. But there was a lot of activism that pushed Truman to do it. Also, it's clear that the World War I veterans and the World War II veterans, when they came back, and they, they actually started activism as veterans. You know, they were as people. They weren't doing it as veterans, but they were veterans. That also created a certain militancy in the black community in general by seeing these men come back and say, no, you're not gonna treat me like this anymore. Um, so the, that pressure from the bottom is part of why that, that integration, yeah. integration took place. And I think as Randy's talking about, we are seeing it again. The military has to look at itself because of the, uh, of the pressure from the bottom, the pressure from the people saying, we're not gonna take this anymore. And black soldiers and other people of color who know that as black people stand up, that helps them be able to stand up too. You know, because we make, and I say we as because I'm black for people who can't see me, we make political space for everybody else. That has been um, one of the things that black people have done in this country. And many people realize that. So as we stand up, everybody else can stand up. And, um, so that makes the military say, oh my goodness, there's 40% of people of color in this. We can't, we can't be on the wrong side of this because that's just going to cause way too much confusion <laughs> amongst our ranks. Yeah. It, it's it's the, the Pentagon's, the military's nightmare that this is this kind of a scenario. <laughs> You're absolutely right. Yeah. It was black GIs coming back from World War II in particular that led the charge and said, we're treated like sh They were treated like because they weren't uh, able to access the benefits of all the GI Bill, including mortgages. And they activated for, you know, integration of the military and actually further down the line, integration further of, you know, desegregation of the, of the United States. Right. But the military, this is their worst nightmare, having a troops that would not obey their orders. That's, right. that's, that's the worst nightmare a general could have. Right. Right. Well, Randy, do you have uh, something to say in closing? Uh, well, I just want to—I want to go for the high ground here and just point out that uh, that there's a culture in the military um, that uh, that suggests that honor is not something 
that is given to you by somebody else, like a prize. But honor is a, a, a way of conducting yourself. And that to the extent that I, I, I suspect that much as we disagree with the Pentagon brass on, on wars abroad and all kinds of other things, <coughs> I suspect that, uh, that they've been steeped in this notion of honor as a, as a way of conducting yourself rather than as a award somebody gives you. And that now is the moment. We're going to watch and see. Uh, as a mutineer, I am watching with great interest to see how the Pentagon handles this crisis and the challenge that, that, that's coming their way. And I'll, challenge, I'll, I'll channel my father, you know, and, and on his behalf also watch. So for my father, the, the lifer, you know, a veteran of three wars, and myself as the military resistor, you know, the mutineer, for both of us, I'm, I'm watching the Pentagon because by their own culture and definition, honor is how you conduct yourself. And we're going to find out exactly what they're made of. Right. That's right. So uh, let me just say um, the civil rights leader, his name was A. Philip Randolph. He was a, um, a union leader, civil rights activist, socialist politician. And, um, and, and he played a, a good, a important role in helping, um, desegregate the, the US military. So I just wanted people to know that. You should look him up. He's an amazing person. He's one of those people who we all should know about, but few mm -hmm. people do. And he was a forerunner of some of the ideas that Martin Luther King um, popularized. Yeah, sleeping car porters. That's right, that's right. All right, Mike, you have any closing words and then we'll go. I know. No, I, uh, thanks, Randy, for, for uh, being part of the show. It's uh, always great to have your insight, and uh, we're, we're glad to have you as a member of VIP. Well, I'm glad to be on board. Yeah, most definitely. So once again, uh, this is Veterans for Peace radio show, Chapter 92. The radio show airs and streams every fourth Wednesday of the month, 6 to 7 p.m. on KODX 96.9 FM Seattle. And you can find that at kodxseattle.org. You can find our archive shows at that same website slash Seattle BFP. That's the end of the show. But before we go, let me give credit where credit is due. Our theme music, Untouchable, and the transition music, Spanish Winter, are from The Passion Hi-Fi. You can find this music at thepassionhi-fi.com. That's the P A S S. I-O-N hi-fi h-i-f-i dot com stay in the struggle power to the people and power to the peaceful